The Everything Sequel Podcast is brought to you by Tua T Fitness and the Vegas Beer Guys. The Everything Sequel Podcast contains explicit language. You have been forewarned. Hello and welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the Star Trek II, the Wrath of Khan edition. Michael Schantz here of the How Dare You Awards. Joining me, of course, the man whose phaser of knowledge is set to stun, Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions. Give it to him, Tom. Ah, Kirk, my old friend. Do you know the Klingon proverb that tells us revenge is a dish that is best served cold? (laughs) It is very cold in space. Love it. Yeah. I'm taking this from a a movie quote site. Movie quote DB. Uh Uh-huh. And it, 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 it describes this as Khan quotes a French proverb. (laughs) <laughs> says right there it's Klingon right I was just going to say the number of times throughout this series that that the Klingons seem to have knowledge of Shakespeare yeah. is just well, delightful well I mean that's the joke right yeah, that's right. the joke is that they, they've sort of um, they've claimed <laughs> other people's cultures for their own because they're an empire yeah and they're shameless <laughs> so... until the next generation in which they're the most honorable people in the in the in, in the entire galaxy. In the entire galaxy, and we get a we get a sort of uh, a retconning of that in uh, Undiscovered Country a little bit. Yeah, I did... and a little bit of Final Frontier. Actually, I think okay. I think we start, and then you know those are the two that cross over with Next Generation. So it can't what's be... the character's name? Dorf. Worf. Worf. You're thinking of Stephen Dorf. I am. Uh, Dorf. No, actually, well, you're confusing the actor and the character. The actor's Michael Dorn. Okay, yeah. The character is. I've combined yeah. the the yeah. actor and the character. Like once we had Wolf, we had to start being nicer to the Klingons in, the, so, in in every movie. I don't think my knowledge is as as broad as yours in the Star Trek world in terms of literally until we were watching these movies for the purposes of this podcast. I never really paid much attention to the star dates and when the movies yeah. are taking place. I just I knew I knew the next generation came after and that's where it kind of ended for me. How far in the what future an interesting experience it must have been to watch Star Trek and not take note of the star dates. Yes, exactly. I always thought that Worf was just Worf from uh next generation, but apparently it was supposed to be like his great grandfather. Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's what I mean, a sequel and a prequel. Right. (laughs) But, of course, that's another movie we'll be talking about later. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about, I think, most people's favorite of the Star Trek sequels, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, the movie that saved their franchise. Yes. And this movie's directed by Nicholas Meyer. We were talking previously in our ranking episode, the... Uh, we'll call it the Meyer effect and how involved mm. Nicholas Meyer is in so many of these movies and the, especially the ones that work. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is the... I would say it's the ultimate course correction, right? Yeah. It made... It made a cinematic afterlife for uh, a possibility seem seem not only possible but preferable, desirable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is incredible given the feeling, you know, the bad feeling that um, followed the motion picture. Well, and also, I think it's really interesting Nicholas Meyer as a director because you know there's not a huge volume of movies for him. No. There's, uh, if people remember Company Business, a Gene Hackman vehicle with Mikhail Baryshnikov, uh, <laughs> The Deceivers, and then a movie so, I have. To ha- be honest, you would have, if, if you, you might not know it, but if you saw it, you'd remember it. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if you saw a movie with Gene Hackman and Mikhail Baryshnikov, you'd remember you'd it. You'd remember that movie, life. exactly. <laughs> And and then a movie that I have long adored, Volunteers, mm. with Tom Hanks, Rita Wilson, and John Candy. Wow. And as, aside from his work for both Star Trek II and Star Trek VI, these these are the you know the really the only movies uh, uh, on his hmm? on his resume. Quality, not quantity. So for a guy who seems to have such a sure hand, mm. you know. He he hasn't directed a lot, but he directed. Surprised this... he hasn't. Yeah, I suppose he hasn't directed more action movies. Yeah, right. Because his handling of action is uh, great, and this is superb. Yeah, like it, the 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 action sequences in in this film have exactly the right ratio of suspense to action. Mm-hmm. And there's actually not many directors who who figured that out. It's like Hitchcock and <laughs> and, and like right. a couple other people, and that's it. <laughs> I was especially cognizant of that the first time the two uh, enter. Well, when the Enterprise is is what's the name of the other ship? The Excelsior. The Excelsior. Mm-hmm. What you know, when they're kind of sizing each other up, and Kirk doesn't really know what's going on, and but yeah. shields are down, and they don't, you know, the racketing up of tension and the yeah. way that's shot and the way it's edited, like all of it put together, makes for compelling filmmaking. You know, and and it's no fluke because they pull the same trick again in the undiscovered country. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So it's clearly uh, it's Nicholas uh, Meyer. It's Nicholas Meyer un- understanding, you know, the cinematic language of mm-hmm. suspense and action, but also, you know, a, an understanding of of the roots of the series, which you know that the original one of the one of the few things of worth that Gene Roddenberry cr- contributed to Star Trek was. This idea that it would be like a submarine movie in space. Yeah, I mean that that was all him. He he knew that that was the way that you could get audiences, particularly those who have been like through World War Two, and a lot of them had served in the Navy. Like mm-hmm. he knew that was a way to make you understand. Yeah, yeah, as a hook for a for a show where you don't know what the world that you know you don't understand the world, but you understand you know that on a ship there's an admiral, there's a captain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you know space is the sea. Like he knew that was how you got you know got people into it. He contributed nothing else of worth to the show, but <laughs> but that, uh, but but Nicholas Meyer really picks up that mantle. Yeah. In both in both of his movies, I agree. Um, uh, you know he he so it's it's like you can accuse Nicholas Meyer of not understanding some of the finer points of Star Trek mythology, but he understands what at at its root this, this what it's about. Yeah. What this franchise is about. Yeah. Well, he directs this movie to the high watermark from Rotten Tomatoes, 
this movie sits at for Rotten Tomatoes. No and less than it deserves. Yeah, and it's you know, I I think I think this movie looks remarkable for a budget of eleven point two million dollars. It's really uh, interesting. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting you, you you bring that up because I I something that really struck me this time round, and I've seen motion picture. I mean, we've done we did it a year or yeah. so ago, but I've seen it more recently than that. Um, the effects are improved, but not because the quality is improved. No, yeah, right. Work, it's because they're working within their means. Yeah. They're not trying to be as... Um, they're not as ambitious as they were mm-hmm. with the motion picture. They're just trying to... You're trying to do everything on a smaller scale. It feels very videographic, but it works for the story. Right. And it works for the world that they're creating. And so you you could say the the effects are not necessarily better than they are in the motion picture but they found a scale of effects right. that they can really do well yes exactly and you know motion picture was overreaching yeah yeah i think you're right about that i mean this movie it makes its money back beyond uh you know in its opening weekend so a budget of 11.2 14.3 opening weekend in the USA and the world 78.9 million dollars and like we said this movie saves the franchise and you were there were you not in opening weekend oh yeah <laughs> loved it <laughs> tune into the 1982 podcast the yeah. 1982 project to more on that yeah i mean i i i saw it more than once in the theater and and obvious, you know, it came out June fourth of eighty two, and if you're you're listening to the nineteen eighty two project, you know that that was a year, you know, packed. Yeah. Um, you know, for a long time, the highest grossing movie of of all time was out that summer, and that was E. T. Mm. And so, you know, if you're gonna find an audience, you got to be a good movie, and this yeah. was a good movie, you know. In retrospect, the worst possible time to release this. Yeah, film. right. And yet, and yet, it's a good enough film that it can withstand that kind of um, that sort of uh, competition. Right. Now, do you have a bee in your bonnet? Because we've discussed the <laughs> 1982 project already. You're talking generally or in relation <laughs> to? S- I think we've established that that is a generally true statement. Yes. <laughs> All I know is that we seem to have upset you. <laughs> you said you will talk about it on this podcast. So, so I, I, and I, I, it reminded yeah. me when you brought up the 1982 project. So, so if you want to yeah. get it off your chest now, we can start with it. I'll briefly man. I'll yeah. I'll briefly mention it. So, um, Mike and uh, former guest of the show Matthew and screenwriter Matthew Aldrich uh, do a podcast, which we. Um, <laughs> Which uh, you know we is actually on this platform. You can go, you can you know see it on this feed. Yes. Um, the 1982 project they've covered Wrath of Khan, and uh, first of all, this is an amazing podcast. You should all be listening to it. It's brilliant. Oh, thank um, you. However, but I have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not a problem. And actually, it's it's. Does it have to I, do with the acting we were talking about? I'm, okay, so. Yeah, so I both I listened I listened to a draft of the episode and then I listened to the episode after it was released and both times it made me angry when you talked about Wrath of Khan. 
bearing in mind you are 99% positive. Yes. <laughs> and it's possible that you like this movie more than I do. Well, I'll put it at the top of my list and you did not. But exactly. So I don't have a leg to stand on, but you both both described Shatner and Montalban's acting in this film as melodramatic. Now hang and on a second. I just feel like I just feel like that is a that is a complete <laughs> I knew that, that is such a superficial reading of what I they achieved. I knew that this would be your problem. So first of all, for those that haven't listened to the episode, I want to remind them and you, sir, that I described Ricardo Montalban's performance as an Oscar worthy performance. But like, you both it should have say- been nominated. But you both kept saying, you know, it was like the heights of melodrama, and and uh, well, I think Matt brought that, is a that carica- up. That is a caricature. Of I this think film Matt brought that, that up. True. Matt brought that up, and it's a it's a characterization. Didn't hear you fighting him. Most especially of Shatner. That, I have to admit, upon. I agreed with him at the time because you know we were just talking in our ranking episode about. The sort of fandom idea of yeah. of of Star Trek V, the Final Frontier, yes, and and maybe to a lesser extent Star Trek Three, and that 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 narrative does kind of stick in your mind. And Shatner's melodramatic acting is another sort of thing within the vernacular of fandom mm. that yeah, sticks exactly. with all of us. And so I didn't have any pushback for Matt at the time. And yet, one of the things that struck me on this viewing was, I still think that there can be moments of that where where what's happening. Yeah, it's called range. With Shatner is is <laughs> well, well, but 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 what he's saying might go a step above the situation itself. Only once, but and in, in like a famously in a revered moment, which is <laughs> supposed to be ridiculous. <laughs> The rest of the movie, it's actually fairly understated from both. And both I have leads. to admit, I there there were moments throughout all all of these sequels that I was watching where I thought Shatner gets a lot of shit and he probably shouldn't. So except when he's directing himself. Yeah. Okay. Fine. That's the only but, and 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 that's obvious why that's the moment. You know, and I was going to say this in our last episode because there are moments you and I are both actors and and have you ever seen an actor Speak do for yourself? <laughs> Have you ever seen an actor do something in a movie where you thought, that's so perfect, I could try a thousand times and never do it that well? You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, in, the, in these films. Yeah. Just, uh, William, Sh- William Shatner in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. For me, for me there there are a couple moments in Star Trek Four with, with yeah. Shatner. Specifically Specifically when he when he sees Leonard Nimoy swimming with the whales. Yeah. And the, the the like the look of surprise and like hand to his face down to his like to me yeah. it's so pitch perfect, I you know I thought I knew that this was gonna be your hang up <laughs> for Star well, Trek two, and I'll, yeah, I'll, just, I'll concede I don't think is, you're wrong like it's just just because it's such it's such a stereotype of of both this film yeah. and Shatner um, as an actor and. While I concede, you know, that there is one moment where he completely lets loose, but it's a very specific moment. Yeah. 
you know, I'm always struck by how understated his performance in the rest of the movie is. And with regards to Multibon, he's so, at times so, playing it so naturalistically mm-hmm. that I'm thinking, this is a different type of villain that we're used to. Yeah. They're playing up how articulate and suave he is. I mean, you know, I also, you know, I had a bit of an issue with you. I know he's dressed in ways that iconographically figure a savage. But the character itself is a is a super intelligent, genetically yes. engineered human uh, being, scientific genius. Yeah. Um, and everything in the film, he, everything he says in the film speaks to his intellect. Yeah, so I agree. I think super. I think superficially, maybe it's the you know maybe that's a beef with the costume designer. I mean, hair metal was very big at the time, so <laughs> yeah, right. You know, he he and his, but also like he and his crew there's... do look like the cover of an eighties hair metal band yeah. album. But but also t- there's nothing out of in the narrative to to make that out of place. They've been living there for a long time. They've been you know, exactly they're exactly. making do. So. But he, but I'll throw you a bone, okay? Okay. I I think that I I've always thought of this as one of the one of the best uh, popular movies that Hollywood has produced about mortality and death. Mm. And what you both you and Matt said about the last line of this movie and how I feel that young. Complete, I feel young and how it completely undermines it. Uh, I'd never noticed that before, and 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 it's completely disingenuous uh, yeah. compared to the rest of the movie. I think I think they're thinking more. I think that line is definitely a misstep. I, to be honest, I'd never noticed it. It, it seems so throwaway, but you're right. It does undermine. Well, and it what depends the on trying to the... say about aging. Yeah. But I'd, my only, I guess, my only apology, my only kind of excuse for that, is that they're thinking more conceptually in terms of the idea of rebirth and Genesis and what's going to happen to Spock in the next film. Well, I was uh, just going to say, and also where in, the series is going to go mouth. after. Yeah. Yeah. The, putting it in Kirk's mouth is, is, was a mistake after everything that he has said and that has been talked about, about accepting mortality and accepting aging and death. Mm-hmm. And, um, in all of the respects, it's a mature film for mature men. Right. Right. And, uh, so I'm grateful that you pointed that out. I know. I mean, that's that. That's one of, one of my I don't know quarter, quarter negative right. notes that I have. Yeah. One three I have. Because I I don't film. have a lot for this movie. I, no I just, no. There's not a lot wrong with it. There's just I just I fucking adore this movie. Yeah. And I think you know what's funny is because and I talk about this on the 1982 project. Matt and I talk about Star Trek the motion picture and. What do you remember from it? I'm like, I just remember uh, that I fell asleep and there was a bald woman. Or maybe we talked about that, I think, maybe during our watch-along. Right. Uh, Both. Yeah, maybe. And so, like, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, is the movie that made me fall in love with Star Trek. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It. I do. It, it's, it's not the... The movie that me, but I do, I can understand. Yeah, it's the movie that pulled me in and made me start loving uh, the world. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Oh, I don't know (laughs) what else to say. That you're you're absolutely right. Uh, Well, and you know, we're kind of spoken to about the ideas about 
what this movie is dealing with conceptually. Yeah. And mortality and, and you know, the sense of one's own, you know, one's own self. Uh, yes. And your time on, well, not not on planet Earth, but, you know, your, your, your time spent living. Well, you know, he's from Iowa. He only works in space. He only works in space. And, of course, at the beginning of this movie, we have what looks like the next crew for the Enterprise being trained. Yeah. Um, I have some... Be- before we get to that... Yeah. <laughs> that is the beginning of the movie. Sorry, I forgot. You probably have some credit notes. Yeah, I- I've got something to say about those three minutes of titles. Okay. <laughs> by, by the way, that's another stereotype of the, of the Star Trek movies, <laughs> that they have the longest title sequences. Of, of any film. I actually think this is the worst. This is the most lengthy. <laughs> I think they they find ways to sort of, you know, slice it up in later films. But this one... I noticed it. A... I noticed it in Undiscovered Country where they, they only had different colored credits. Like, move yes, from, exactly. From, so this is like... Move this from is purple a... to blue to green to pink back. <laughs> so th- this might be the peak of you know, lengthy title sequences with nothing to look at but names. Yeah. Okay, no, <laughs> names and stars, that's it. But it's actually, it actually gets, uh, it actually lessens from this point onwards. But crucially here, we get the credit, executive consultant Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> and I mean, if you want a job title that makes it clear, he's only being credited because we have to. Right. Executive consultant is the one right <laughs> now and, and it's not even the last time he's credited in these titles it says based on star trek by gene roddenberry as all these films do mm-hmm. he's still credited twice even in a film for which he had no involvement <laughs> and it's not even that he wasn't involved it's that it is only this good because he is not involved right I mean, everything that went wrong with the motion picture was about an idea of Star Trek that he was pushing and refused to relent on. And this movie takes exactly the opposite tracks. It says, why not? Why can't we do this? Why can't it be about this? Hey, you remember that episode, um, Mm -hmm. Balance of Terror? Let's just do that. That would work well as a movie because it's based on a submarine movie. So, but anyway, um, I just wanted to, to, (laughs) to kind of put that out. Um... And also introducing Kirstie Alley, so we have a we have a star making debut here, right? As we did in the motion picture with uh, mm-hmm. uh, the well, name I... that's coming to my head is Hieronymus yeah. Bosch, but that's not what it is. Uh, I was I was gonna say I can't remember the name her name, Pers- but Persimmons July. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Just say Stephen Collins and say that's what you meant. Can you dub in the right name? <laughs> sure. Mr. Black. <laughs> the Denver Broncos. Um, oh, two the Denver two, Broncos. <laughs> two Simpsons references for the price of one. There you go. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. You were about to say we have, a, we have what appears to be a new crew. Um... So we have a lot of key, like, legacy elements. Well, I just think we've, it's remarkable. We've got the original cast. We've got the captain's log. Yeah. We've got the Enterprise bridge. But we have a new female captain, new uniforms, and they're on a training mission. Yes. So it's it's like old, old transitioning to new, except it's a smokescreen. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's all horseshit. It's all complete um, horseshit. But something they do introduce that will be that you know is a key mythology element that will that the series will never leave behind is Kobayashi Maru. I was just gonna say, yeah. So, um, but this also reminded me of the beginning of From Russia with Love. You know, where you think you're of seeing something. Of course it did, Tom. No, but you think you're seeing something. You're starting with something that you think is real, and it's just, it's a simulated. Just under uh, 24 out. minutes in. Um, <laughs> but it occurred to me, it occurred to me on this, um, on this viewing. The characters are simulating deaths for our benefit. It doesn't make sense within the frame of the simulation. Right. That they should pretend to die. And then you, but, but. It's the movie knows that because we have the line afterwards where, where um, DeForest Kelly asks, "Yeah, right, William Shatner to rate his performance." Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> um, so it's starting in a very meta way, both in the sense that we're you know we're watching a simulation, and also we're talking about like a- acting, like characters acting, acting within like the scene. yeah, right. Because um, you kind of want. You know, when you've seen the movie a bunch of times, you kind of want Kirstie Halley to say, get up, Bones. I know you're not dead. <laughs> right, exactly. Help me out, asshole. Uh, and this is this is the first hint that Nicholas Meyer might not have done his homework on, on Star Trek, because I, I I think the neutral okay. zone is with the Romulans, not the Klingons. But maybe that's that's Yeah, but secret... they mentioned that several times throughout the series. Yeah. Different neutral zones and... Yeah. So, is there more than one? I guess was my question. I didn't think so. Okay. I always thought it was just with the with the Romulans. So that's either that's either him not knowing Star Trek, or it's the first clue that mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, it's it's the clue that this is a fake out. Yeah, I suspect the the former. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I love something I love here. Like even though these are ensemble movies, it's still. William Shatner is very clearly configured as the star. Yeah. And he gets a he gets a hero's entrance. Oh yeah. I mean they like the backlit and the you know <laughs> backlit silhouette, glowing yeah. blue background. Right. I mean, you know, this is this is a this is a democratic you know, this is a democratic piece of storytelling, but it has an authority figure at the center of it, and right. that's Kirk, and it will always be Kirk. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the movies is named after Spock, and yet Kirk is still the star, yeah, still the hero. Right. Uh, one of those that, that movie. There's actually you you see William Shatner's name in the credits, mm-hmm. followed by a really long pause, and then DeForest Kelly. Yes, yes. And the pause is where Leonard Nimoy's name would be normally. Yeah. If he wasn't in all but like four minutes of the movie. Right. Yeah. yeah. But uh, go on, please. I mean, I mean, well, so we were, you know, that that was uh, that was uh, that was really um, it. I mean, as a great, uh, a, a justifiably famous and great scene coming up where Bones mm-hmm. visits uh, yeah. Kirk in his apartment, and this is the core of this is the thematic core of the movie. Um, yes, and it's again, it's a very meta message it is because we're, we're talking about the aging of the cast right and i find that world, remarkable but you're also talking about the aging of the characters i find that remarkable for the series that oh my yes in the first five minutes of star trek 2 the wrath of khan the second movie in the series 
of which there will be six. And yes. we're going to continue with movies, or at least the ones we're talking about, almost a decade after this one comes out. Exactly a decade. Well, 91 to 80, yeah. So, but... <laughs> so, I find it remarkable that we're bringing up their age now. <laughs> it is a bit like the For Your Eyes Only. Yeah. Now's the, now's the time you talk about Roger Moore being too old to play the part. He's got two more mo- He's two got movies as well. Two movies to go. To go. Uh, there is a little bit of that, but it's, it's, just, it's just baked into this movie as mm-hmm. a theme, like throughout. It's not just about the characters, it's also, you know, the, the, the symbol of Genesis. Uh, right. What happens to Spock in the movie? Um, the idea of you know of Khan being resurrected from mm-hmm. from the dead. Um, so it's baked. It's baked. In, it's it's more than just like when he gets to undiscovered country. I think it is just about getting in front of the yeah, critics, right? right? It Whereas is about, this is like, the theme of the movie, and it's, like, it's I mean it really is baked into yeah. every layer of the cake. We have to, it's like an undiscovered country, it feels like. We have to tell the audience that we're old before the audience accuses us of being too old. Yeah. But this doesn't feel like that at all. It feels, it, it, it feels like it, it's a thoughtful meditation. Yeah. On, on the idea of mortality um, that is by no means just restricted to the scene or these characters. It's, it's everywhere in this movie. Um, he gets his glasses. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a lot. You, you, I mean, you could do a whole podcast on. I don't think on I'd Kirk, ever. Apartment. I was but... gonna say. I. I don't think I'd ever noticed all of his pirate guns on the wall. And this is. It's really interesting, like how, <laughs> how different directors and writers in this series represent Kirk. Mm-hmm. Because whenever Nicholas Meyer gets his hands on the character, he he becomes very naval, very military. Right. You know, in in undis- in this and undiscovered country, he's very much a warrior. Yes. And a and a specifically in like a naval man, and yet you lose that in the other films. And sort of revered not... throughout the galaxy, right? But you don't get really get the sense. I mean, in original series, you, he's not he's not out of you know he lives in relatively peaceful times. Mm-hmm. He's part of a military, but it's a it's a military during peacetime. Um, yeah. But Nicholas Meyer really has him pinned as a as as um, to represent a the militaristic military. man. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also find it fascinating that they, they have a conversation about getting back the Enterprise, and if you go by the ending of the last film, Kirk had it. Right, right. He seems to have lost it in between. Yeah, <laughs> by accepting a promotion to admiral. To admiral, right. So, so basically, this is a circuitous reset. He had it. We're we're back where we were at the beginning of the motion picture. Yes. Even though by the end of the motion picture, he'd got the Enterprise back. It's as if it's as if the motion picture is not in canon. Right. Right. Which I'm sure is is what you know. I'm I'm sure is. Uh, but I, like I, it I not think to that be. Nicholas Meyer was thinking of a reset. So yeah. And this is where we find ourselves. But we're about to you know meet. Excelsior and we're, you know... Sorry, it's the Reliant, it's not the Excelsior. Oh, Reliant, that's right. Excelsior, I think, is... Um, Maybe that's in the... That's in the... That's that's a, uh, well, that's, it's in 3 that's and... That's Howard Hunters. That's yeah, Space Howard Hunters. exactly. Show. That's 3 and 6. Yeah. All right, well, let's take a break, and then we'll come back and we'll meet the crew of the Botany Bay. 
Okay, and I'll try and get Star Wars right. There you go. I'll try and get more Star Wars. Jesus Christ. I'll try and get. I'll try and. I'll try and remember that we're doing Star Trek, and I'll try and get my Star Trek facts right, or at least more of them than Nicholas Meyer does. Perfect. Right after this. <laughs> Does the coronavirus have you feeling oogie? Have you been sitting on your couch for weeks? Nay, have you been sitting on there for months? Well, it's time for you to get back in shape. Check out 2AT Fitness. You can find them on Instagram. You can find them on Facebook. 2AT Fitness was started by Tina Bernard. She is ready and raring to go to help you get back into the shape you want to get into. They've got all kinds of classes. They've got outdoor in-person classes. They've got online classes if that's what you prefer. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get back in shape. You're going to find a variety of exercises. You're going to have strength training, cardio, weightlifting, even fun five-minute burnouts that will push you to your limits. So get off the couch, get into shape. Go ahead and check out Tua T Fitness. Tina Bernard has got you for all your needs. I know her personally. She's fantastic. You're not going to meet a better person to help you become the new you. Check it out. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here discussing fan favorite Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Directed by one Nicholas Meyer. All right, Tom, when last we left, we were just about to meet the crew of the Botany Bay, and then, of course, we are introduced, or reintroduced, I should say, yeah. to Khan. And we're re reintroduced to Chekhov as well, who is now on the starship Reliant. Reliant, right, and he's with Paul Winfield. Right, n new, Terrell. new starship, n new starship old crew member, so lots of familiar elements, but in new locales. Mm -hmm. That's a not to mention the Botany Bay. Um, At least they got that right. <laughs> right, you know. So here's, I mean, here's the the, the biggest continuity error is uh, both Chekhov recognizing Khan and Khan recognizing Chekhov because the epic. Oh, I haven't said that the that this is a sequel to a specific episode episode of, of Star, Star Trek, yeah, the Star series, Trek, the original series called Space Seed. Which is a first season episode prior to uh, Walter Koenig joining the cast, so the timeline doesn't work that they would have ever uh, run into each other. Although Walter Koenig has a fabulous explanation as to how this might be true, like he that he, he prepared he read that he prepared yeah the... in, in after receiving a number of fan questions, <laughs> he has the perfect answer. Um, so check that out. But uh, yeah, I mean it doesn't. It doesn't really matter, except Khan does say, I never forget a face. So I right. feel like they're writing themselves into an even deeper, deeper hole, hole yes. than, they, than they needed to. Um, but it gives, a, you know, a, we give Khan's back, enough of Khan's backstory to, and that's to the, fill in anyone yeah, who hasn't seen Space Seed. I think that's one of the things that this movie does remarkably well, because... You do yeah. not have to have seen that episode to know exactly what's happening in this movie and enjoy it for what it is. If anything, it detracts from uh, <laughs> your enjoyment. <laughs> right. 
simply because they decide to put Chekhov there. But uh, well, not just not not just that. I mean, it, it's well, we could talk about this more later. But the way the movie goes on, it's uh, kind of an implied critique of Kirk's actions in that episode because he decides to mm-hmm. he basically decides to give Khan a reprieve after uh, he tries a hostile takeover of the Enterprise. And so, largely, Kirk is responsible for 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 the marooning the these by, people. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean that that is they fudged that enough to sort of say that he couldn't have anticipated this would have happened to them. Right. But it's kind of uh, it is kind of implied that Kirk's actions were too liberal for their own good at the end of Space Seed, which a lot of I think you think. Yeah, and I think yeah, you know, I mean I think... Chekhov does have those lines where he says, you know, he sh- what I don't think he says showed mercy, but that's sort of the idea of it, yeah, you yeah. know. Um uh, I mean this the the thing that the thing that's really striking about the is SETI Alpha 5, is that where mm-hmm. we are? Um Well, it's always hard to tell between SETI Alpha 5 or SETI Alpha 6. Yeah, but, or Nimbus 3 yeah. or uh, the planet of galactic peace. Yes. Um, but this is the first time the series has moved into the realms of dirty space. Mm-hmm. And this is the probably the biggest shift in the idea of what Star Trek was. I think just by the nature of it being sixties television, it's a very it was a very sanitized view of what. Right. And also, you know, the utopianism of it. Um, it was a very sanitized idea of what space was. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at that episode, that, it's a very clean starship. Yeah, you know. But here we're leaning into, you know, the we we see the debris, the dust, yeah. the dirt, um, in the cargo carrier, and the creatures. You know, this, it, it's interesting, and it's interesting again in in comparison to the motion picture where, yeah, right. That was, that was very much trying to emulate Star Wars on the level of spe- scale and spectacle, and it failed. Mm-hmm. But here, I think the trick is, it's trying to emulate Star Wars. In the genre of dirty space, yeah, and it actually succeeds. It does very that well, right? Because it's different enough from what Star Trek was on TV, mm-hmm. and yet it's a you know it feels it feels like a, it helps build out the cinematic, uh, the cinematic um, space, yeah, enough that you you feel like there's been real growth here, but at the same time, you feel like you're getting something you wouldn't get in the TV show. Yeah. Well, but, and but also, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel inauthentic to the show at all. No, not at all. And also you're I think you're you are re- remarkably helped by having Ricardo Montalban as part of your cast in this movie. Yeah. Because from the moment you see him, he lends gravitas to the entire proceedings. Right. Uh, it's so funny. Like, we you know, we bitch all the time about fan service, but I mean, this is fan service, right? He's a fan favorite character. Was he, though? I, I, I never even. Yeah, I mean, I, I never... mean, Space Seed is one of the most revered episodes of the okay. show. Um, but and, yeah, I guess my it's question the best was. De- it's the best decision that the, the literally the best decision that the franchise ever made. Uh, yeah. To bring this My question back. was cuz I just don't know enough of the history, was it always one of the most popular episodes or did it become one of the most popular episodes because of this movie? Both. Okay. But certainly, certainly that you know, part of there was a cult around Khan and he's in one episode. Yeah, right. 
I mean, you, it might have something to do with the ongoing fame of Ricardo Montalban as well. I'm sure as that is. his fame grew, right? Right. The studio are not going to put in someone who is not otherwise popular. But he himself, case. upon you know, because I uh, we talked about this in the other podcast, he's he's smack dab in the middle of doing Fantasy Island. Yeah. And he's just the most benevolent, wonderful, kind character in that show. Sure. And he himself wasn't even sure if he could bring Khan back, and he had to like rewatch that episode several times before he. Thought, I know who the guy is, and I can bring him back. Yeah. And when you see him in this first scene, and I mean, he's taking off the gloves, and then, I mean, I love this part where he goes up to check off, and he says, "Why are you here?" Yeah. And then he grabs him by that 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 very convenient handhold on the front of his spacesuit and lifts him up. Yeah. And just with as much, again, gravitas as he can muster, he says, "Why." It's yeah. like from that moment on, you are off to the races. I think at any age, you know, whether you're young or old, you know, child or adult, you hook into this movie where it's such a simple narrative. This guy that was marooned here by Kirk wants yeah. to get him at all costs. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it works in the movie's favor, especially when you juxtapose it against everything that happened in Star Trek, the motion picture. Yeah. It, um, and I think it's important that it, that, that it is Maltabon and he is known for playing more sympathetic characters because yeah. in, in both the writing and the performance, Khan doesn't come out as a stock villain in this scene. Like you right. hear his, you hear, he has a legitimate beef. Yes, exactly. He says, he says something. He says the, they never checked on our progress. Mm -hmm. And that's brilliant. That's just a brilliant bit of writing because you know, it, it calls, it calls Kirk's ethics into, into question. question. Right. But it, it also, you know, it makes you think about, Oh yeah. Like what's happened to everyone. What's happened to everyone, uh, you know, Kirk decided the fate of so many people right. at the end of various episodes. And where are they? Where are all of them? Yeah. Like without without having to, you know, I mean, probably Star Trek, the Star Trek franchise will eventually just make TV shows and movies about all those people. But mm -hmm. you can still think about it without having to put it on screen. You just it just makes you immediately go, Jesus, what happened to everyone? You know that he decided the future of right. And it's done economically, um, but compellingly, and it reminds you that you know this is this is cinematic track. Yeah. Right. We're gonna do we're gonna do things differently. The logic of that series does not necessarily apply here. Yeah. Um. And you know another sh another really important shift here is towards body horror. Well, right? and that's I my mean, next it, note. Actually, I was just gonna say the earworm. Yes. I mean. Again, that is something you just can't do in a network TV series, right. even at this, even in the early eighties. Um, something this visceral, this visceral, uh, that leans towards body horror as the earworm does here, right? Because it also they're still re they're very restrained about it. Like it's not, it's not gratuitous. No, body especially horror. when it goes into their ears because they got their yeah. helmets on. You don't even see it. It's when it comes out later in the movie. That's more, but it's more that's... disturbing than normally yes, TV series right. are allowed to be. Of course, but it also, um, you know, it kind of it's setting itself apart from, say, a Star Wars, in which you know yeah. you're going to see the trash monster wrap its mm -hmm. body around Luke and drag it down, 
or uh, the you know they're they're inside the monster in Empire Strikes Back. Yes, you know, exactly. This is upping the stakes from even that, and so it's setting itself apart from the other yeah. major franchise of the time. Again, it's you know it's working within their means. You know that they're, they're yes. censoring themselves to an extent, so you know it's not simply about looking at the thing. It's you know it's yes, and in some ways making it scarier. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, I mean, again, it's like a it, it's a it's a huge departure. For a series that's with a history of what Star Trek was known for was unconvincing special effects. Yeah. And when you see the worm and the larvae and how credible they look. Yes, right. You realize that that that's changed as well. Like practical effects now look good in Star Trek. Right. I mean, that's got to have contributed to the legitimacy of the film version. Um. And then you know we 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 go back to we go back to we see a shuttle going into space dock. We're effectively reenacting the motion picture. I I, I had that about note ten, too. Yeah, about ten times shorter. Yes, exactly. Than it takes. I love the fact that we just get straight. It into It takes that the space appropriate dock. amount of time, and yet I also noted that you you have this this portion where you're seeing the Enterprise from the outside, and the lights are coming on. Yeah. And so you still have that sense of spectacle and scale, yeah. you know, but in half the time, well, less <laughs> yes. than half the time, like, you know, you know I, in a tenth of the time. And so you still have the sense of the awe of it, mm-hmm. but we're moving yeah. on narratively. And so all yeah, of that is, you know, sense, sensible, sensibly paced. Yes, exactly. All of that is what makes this movie work. And not just that, but uh, like when, when, um, and you got the James Horner music as well. Yes, which is new. I mean, that, yes, I mean that's another interesting departure. They decided to to leave behind the motion picture music, right. which would later become the next generation theme. <laughs> um, but music, I mean, music goes through. We got to keep an eye on this because the music to these movies changes mm-hmm. dramatically. Right between between composers, different themes coming back. Actually, it's Final Frontier that the the motion picture theme comes back in first. Um, oh, does it? That was a, wow. Yeah, yeah. It, it comes back. So, but we'll keep we'll 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 track that as All we right. go. But something that I also notice is you have an exchange between um, Kirk and Scotty upon arrival that is basically the same scene from the motion picture. But there's more personality in this exchange than the entirety of the motion picture. <laughs> right. And all they're doing is making you know stupid little guy jokes about shore leave yeah. and drinking. I was just like, but you suggested so much more character yeah. than than anyone has in the motion picture. So you're already way ahead. <laughs> and we've not even got to the most like character revealing moments yet. No, right. We haven't even had our two our our main hero and our main baddie. They haven't you know met each other yeah. yet. They haven't seen each but other Nicholas yet. But Nicholas Meyer seems to understand how two people might talk to each other. Right. <laughs> Exactly. Using their brains yes. and their personalities. Right. Um, <laughs> so um, it's re- something that else that's kind of like flips the script. So in the in the original series, basically Spock was the subject of racist abuse from all the humans in the cast. Yes. Whereas here, it seems that Savick is the one being racist towards humans. So this is a really nice 
reversal of racist reversal here. Right. It's like reverse racism, and I I really like it. Um, yeah, I it's I always love the moments in these movies too when when that new character, whether it's her or Kim Cattrall, is always trying to remind Kirk of something. Yes. Um, and and you see and then you see Kirk look to Spock or Spock you know in this movie it's a mm, kind of a thing. The captain knows you, this and, and you know I just I love all of those moments where you know yeah, Kirk and Spock gets, know each other so well, and you see it's, their it's, relationship. I, I we I mean we alluded to it in terms of the the you know escape from space dock in yeah in, right. in Star Trek three but but here you know they do the same thing where. Uh, Nicholas Meyer doesn't just show the Enterprise leaving space dock with no stakes. The stakes are right. Savick's got to show she can pilot it out exactly. of space dock, which is such a good setup that they reused it for the pilot of Next Generation. <laughs> Upon meeting Riker, Picard makes him manually pilot the space the um, the Enterprise out of space right. dock. So, which is interesting because Roddenberry wrote that script, so he's he's pilfering. You know, He's pilfering from what works. From Nicholas Meyer. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's it, yeah, going through the motions of the motion picture, right? It's like you said, it's just as fetishistic, but mm-hmm. there's there's a point to it. Yes, right. It, 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 it's about story. It's got story. It's got character. Well, and it, you know, it seems that you know this i think this movie is also it's edited to within an, an inch of its life you know there's there's nothing wasted yeah. in this movie to me no so something else that just goes against the rod and breathos in 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 a way that you know is just ends up it's just dramatically interesting mm-hmm. you know once we get to the surface of the uh, no we, there's a little space station the science station right yeah the right. reliance is orbiting with um carol, carol and, and david david um and it's an image of science and the military in conflict yeah i and this is know, something that roddenberry would never entertain oh it's such a good narrative yeah but he didn't want any th- there to be any conflict yeah. in, in the vision of the future, and it's just something you 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 wouldn't see. Well, think of and where we are that... right now in our world. It's it, you know it matters so much. Yeah. This idea of of how important science is, how much we believe it, and then and whether or not in, yeah. it can be co opted for something evil. And at least in the original series movies, there's still a sense that you know there there is still war in the in the galaxy. There is still poverty. Yeah. Later on in this film, we talk about uh, there being cosmic shortages, which I feel like would we're still in an era of scarcity. The next generation will all be about you know we've solved we've solved mm-hmm. hunger, we've solved right. uh, war. But at this point, you know it, it, it even though you know it's we don't know we're going there yet. We're still at, at this point of transition, and that's much more compelling, I think, for like an early nineteen eighties audience to be like, you know, the galaxy is like our world, you know, there, there yeah, are, right, there are there are shortages just like in our daily lives, like it's it's much more relatable than like the beginning of the you know, like when you yeah. get to the next generation, it's like we're so much better than you, <laughs> right? Nineteen eighties humans. Well, and and um, that's that's a plus in like this movie's column because that yeah. you know it's always going to be more narratively interesting 
to the audiences yeah. that is watching it today, the spectacle doesn't matter. You still have some of the same problems. We still have the needs and wants and yeah, you know, absolutely. And you know, uh, I, I I think you see you see that with the representations of of Vulcans in, in this film, which I think is again, it's like forbidden fruit for the Star Trek franchise to show Vulcans displaying emotions, right? To see them, you know, um, sexualized humanized um and yet that's what that's what this movie does with both Savick and spock right um and i think it's i think i think it's deliberate and i think it's interesting and and um, how do you feel about uh how's you know what do you think of kirstie alley she's superb she's so good in it i mean it it is a, it's a star-making debut you know and no surprise she went on to right. know, have a film and TV career the way she and did. And I'm like, I kind of lament that she never signed a contract that included movies beyond this, so she tried to negotiate for a really high salary and they just got rid of her Yeah. in the subsequent, you know, the next two movies of this mini trilogy. Um, yeah. I, and granted, there's less for her to do in those next two movies, but... Well, not not if they went with their original plan, but we'll talk about that. Yeah, when we get right. Um, and we see something here, uh, or in this part of the film that is that you will see in every movie that is either based on a TV show or about TV. It is you'll see a television screen where the image and sound is inferior, <laughs> right, to a cinematic image. <laughs> Kirk shouting at TV screen transmission. Yeah. And, you know, partly that's partly about the legacy of Star Trek as TV. But every, mo- every movie that is about TV or based on TV show wants to point out that the image that it has is better than the one you would be getting on television. <laughs> that, that added to the fact that there's nothing more Star Trek than sitting around watching Star Trek. Right. On TV. That is... They sit around on TV watching Star Trek. There's more of that in Star Trek than perhaps any other series <laughs> in the history of fiction. I love that. Because, you know, there's nothing better than when in a Star Trek movie you're watching something from the last film right. and wondering, so where are those cameras on the Enterprise? How did they get that? You know? It also, it also uh, at some points, it just gets, it just gets bi- ridiculous. Ridiculous, like, yeah, it does. It's like you, you're watching video footage that of, from the last film that was already video footage in the last film. Right. Um, <laughs> and again, you know, we've got this, we have to find a narrative reason that the Enterprise go you know goes oh simple fix they're they're the closest yeah they're the closest (laughs) um even though the ship's not ready and you'll get one of these at the beginning of every film it's like there's always a compelling reason why it should be the enterprise and it keeps changing um but this one they kind of they're they're trying to raise the the stakes in the sense of because we're with the green crew yeah like are they going to have are they going to be able to muster up you know the the metal that Kirk needs them to at the right time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They they need to grow up a little quicker. So this this theme of premature aging well, is kind of like and, and it both goes ways, yeah right? right exactly and and I mean we also I think we get the message from Carol and like the blurred you know the the, yeah. the bad image. Uh, but then it's right about here when of course, 
they don't know it yet, but Kirk's going to meet Khan. Mm-hmm. And I love that in terms of the, 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 the sort of thesis throughout the movie in terms of the aging that like Kirk openly admits that he got caught with his pants down. Yeah. You know, I love that idea. Oh, definitely. Yeah. But it's still, I like the, I like this about all these movies, like the fly by the seat of your pants nature, the quickness with which Kirk has to make decisions. Yeah. And this moment in which he says, you have to know how starships work. Yeah. Cause he's using his brain. And he's, you know, mm-hmm. he's using his brain in a way in which does Khan, I, I guess, yeah, because Khan is like, now they've had the moment where they're they're on screen and they're talking to each other. Yeah. And Khan is threatening him. And so he says, you know, we're going to do that. But he and Spock always on the same page. And so narratively, like he's able to teach Kirstie Alley something about being a starship commander. Yeah while simultaneously showing his relationship with Spock and showing us, the audience, what it takes to win in a moment where life and death are on the line. And, you know, it's it's even more complicated than that, I think. I mean, it... I don't think the film is necessarily all on Kirk's side. I think it's about his limitations and his abilities as well. No, I agree with Uh, you, yeah. I mean, early on in the the movie, when David and Carol Marcus are talking about him, Mm -hmm. you know, she says, uh, he was many things, he was never a Boy Scout. Yeah. And, you know, that reminds us that... And the whole fact that David is there, you know, he has this, he's this dead, this deadbeat dad, mm-hmm. um, is a kind of riposte to his womanizing that we've seen right. in, in the in the original series. But you find uh, out later that it was by request that you it know. was, you know, it, it was it was so yeah. So it's it's just it's a it's a really good complex. It's a good both the hero and the villain are complex in in their own ways, right. and you know the movie likes to remind you that that these heroes have limitations like much later on in the movie you know they talk about the fact that kirk has no never faced death he's only cheated it yeah right and that's such an important distinction likewise with the you know with the kobayashi maru Mm -hmm. um you know it's not it's it's not facing death it's except it's not accepting that death is going to happen yeah and what, what one of the things that you know, I can complain about Star Trek Three relying too much on Wrath of Khan, but something that I feel like is like a, a callback to, a, like a really interesting character growth callback to Wrath of Khan is that at the end of Star Trek Three, you get a real life Kobayashi Maru, a real life no win scenario, right. and you see in real time how Kirk is reacting. Right, exactly. To it. And this movie sets all that all that character stuff up. Um, incredibly well so yeah i mean it's like anything in this movie it's complex and compelling at the same time you never lose the sense of it that this is your guy this is who you're Mm -hmm. following in the movie that he's gonna win but uh the movie doesn't pull its punches when it comes to his his frailties and his limitations and his vulnerabilities right for god's sake one of the first things you see him do is like pick you know squint at a book Mm-hmm. And get a pair of reading glasses. Well, and I love that moment when he's when he's figuring out the code to lower their shields because he's got to pull out the glasses that Bones gives it's, him. It is, and it's a brilliant, brilliant piece of acting yeah. on his part 
where he puts them on and he looks around to see who's looking at him and then realizes he's got to move on. And like, you know, yeah. it's wonderful. It's so good. It, it really is. But um, to your point earlier on, on the converse side about the complexity of Khan, you have, uh, what's his name? Judson Scott. Uh-huh. Telling this is him so interesting, isn't it? Telling mm-hmm. him you you've you've done everything you wanted to do. You've you've yeah. got you know, you've got a starship. We've we have the means to go anywhere and do anything. We don't have to do this. And yet something within him feels compelled to go get Kirk. We we talked about this recently when I think it was in the sudden impact episode of the Dirty Harry series about uh you know the serial killer do... or no, when you do a revenge movie. Oh yeah. Like the 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 better revenge movies are the ones that actually ask questions about about whether revenge whether is, is the right, good idea. right course to take. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, at the forefront here, you know, Khan basically has his own Spock, right? Mm-hmm. Khan like this is like he's he's Spock to this this character is is to Khan what Spock is to Kirk. Yeah. He's saying to him, you know, think about this logically. Right. You know, who is this going to serve? You've won. And I think it's my, I think it's just. It's a great it's piece of writing. And, and a less, a lesser movie, a less thoughtful movie wouldn't. Would never have, have that, that scene. conversation yeah. in. It would just be like, I'm, I'm coming for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everyone in the crew would cheer him on. Cause they and even it, have moments fa- later yeah. when they, you know, they, they follow the enterprise into the nebulous and, and, and he slows down. Yeah, and Khan's like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "I'm slowing down, shithead." And, he, it's, it's and Khan all... has to kind of go like, "Yeah, okay, I get it." And in Khan's defense, it's, and we didn't mention this, but and this is one of the most interesting continuities. At the end of Space Seed, he goes off to Seti Alpha Five with one of the crew members who yeah, uh, right becomes obsessed becomes with obsessed, American, right? And she dies. You know, she's killed by one she's of those. She's killed off screen. Yeah, you know, for the in, purposes in, of this movie, for the purposes of this movie, but you know, it, it's his revenge is not is not purely selfish. Right, it is he, he, he killed sees my wife Kirk as as the murderer of yeah. of his wife, and so again, it's not as easy as like I, I'm doing this purely for purely for my ego. Mm-hmm. He's doing it in a somewhat noble fashion. It, it, and yeah. again, you know, it's and these are all these the like these aren't screenwriting problems. These are the things that make this movie last, and the things that make it more thoughtful and interesting mm-hmm. than other movies of this type is that you do have all these dimensions to these uh, these characters, which could have both been completely one dimensional. Sure, but they're both far more complex and interesting, especially you know for a movie of this type. You know, when you right. when you go to the Star Wars series and you think of how, you know, Harrison Ford resisted for so many years getting back into Han Solo skin because he kept saying, I think that character's a little thin. And you never have that sense with with a Kirk or a Khan. And I mean, it's so, you know, uh, get something else that at least I've been bitching about recently is is, you know, rebooting a property after 15, 20, even 30 years and the characters show no evidence of aging or development. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's because of movies like Wrath of Khan that I'm so bothered by that. It's like this. It's just like you don't need to like. Right. You, 
don't let's not pretend these people haven't changed. Yeah. And that they're facing different problems and different stages of, of existence. From the last time we saw them. From the last time we saw them. Because it doesn't, like, at no point in this movie does it interrupt the flow of a, you know, a space adventure. No, right. And no, it only in, it only enhances it. Like, mm-hmm. it, I wish that, I wish people under, I wish people who write movies understood that. That these little wrinkles that you're putting in the way of your heroes actually really benefit the story because it ups the stakes. Makes them so much more interesting. You can't depend, you know, it's like, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it at some point and I'm sure, I know you're less annoyed by it than I am, but <laughs> but the fact that now Tom Cruise in, in Top Gun, in Top Gun Maverick, is better than the Tom Cruise than he was in Top Gun? Uh, why? What? <laughs> what's interesting about that? I want him to be more vulnerable. Sure. I want him to be more fragile. <laughs> I want I want I want a Cap a Wrath of Khan Kirk. Fair. Because anyway, it's We'll uh, get there someday, Tom. So, you know, <laughs> but it's not like it's not possible and it's movies like this right. that show it is. All right. Well, why don't we take another break and then we'll we'll sure. we'll come back and we'll we'll you can rant some more. No, I don't want to. No, I don't want to rant some more because we should only be celebrating this film, not not using it to trash other films. So fucking good. Mm-hmm. Be careful. We will. <laughs> we'll be right back. I like to think I know something about beer, but nowadays even I get overwhelmed when confronted by the exhaustive selection of craft beers they have at bars, breweries, and even grocery stores. Back in the day you had one, maybe two craft beers to choose from, and if you were confused, you ordered a Guinness. But in beer stations like San Diego, the craft beer options lately are in double, sometimes even triple, digits. So what's a beer drinker to do? You need what I need, the Vegas Beer Guys. Your beer of choice should be a perfect blend of malt and hops. And so a live show about beer needs that same balance. And the Vegas Beer Guys matches beer expert Dan Aker with self-proclaimed beer novice Stephen J. Weiss. The results are eminently drinkable. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They'll try new beers. They'll tell you about beers. Think of them as your beer sherpas guiding you up a foamy-headed mountain to reach the peak of your pint. God, I need a beer. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here finishing up with Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. A movie at the top of my list and near the top of Tom's list. <laughs> it deserves to be at the top of anyone's list. Yeah, it's that good. Mm-hmm. Let's talk, uh, I mean, we've been giving a lot of play to the screenplay. I want to talk a little bit about Carol and David. Oh, yeah. And the economic way in which we bring fatherhood 
And like you said earlier, Kirk's womanizing and, yeah. you know, the, the consequences of that to bear within this story because it's a part of the story. But, I mean, how much screen time is devoted to it? Right. You know, it's less than probably six or seven minutes. Um, yeah. So it's incredibly efficient in that way, isn't it? Uh, absolutely, yeah. It's just, just enough. Um, there's just enough screen time to get the message across. Yeah. And you know that the, they it, it doesn't Does this feel like a big swing to you too? Like Kirk's a father? Were they trying for that? It would be a big swing if if the if the movie wasn't otherwise about Kirk facing up to mortality. I mm-hmm. mean, there's no better way to illustrate that than fatherhood, yeah. right? Right. Le- learning that you're a father um after all these years. Well, he knew he was a father. Uh, he knew he was but, a father, but but you yeah. know, having to, having to having to tell his own son, uh, and it's interesting. I, I love I love how they first meet because they get into a fight. They yeah right. They get into which a, is yeah you know and uh, you know that that is the like the one the one essential part of every Star Trek TOS episode is that Kirk has to have a fight, mm-hmm. and here you get it. But it turns out to be his son and someone who's on his side. So it's yes. like playing with the conventions of the series in a really nice, in a great, way. satisfying way. Of spe- you uh, know that moment where he goes, David. <laughs> uh, speaking like speaking of economy, um, the I think the same is true of, of Paul Winfield, and yes, like, you get he gets very little screen time, and yet they give him. They give him a moment. So much in the more, film. so much to do in so yeah. little amount of time. He saves every, you know, he saves them all. Yeah, with one act of sacrifice. And I have, I don't know if I've told the story on the on the podcast, but uh, the comedian Ed Byrne once saw Paul Winfield at an airport and went up to him and said how much he enjoyed him in Star Trek II: Wrath of Khan. Mm-hmm. And he said to him, "I died so the white man could live," and then went off and got his flight. Um, and I'm not saying there's not that racial element is there. I mean, it's, it's, it sucks. That's very 1982. It sucks that the black guy has to be sacrificed at all. And first, but, um, but it's, it's given a kind of gravitas and a sort of tragedy befitting of, of the actor, Paul Winfield. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it made me think, is he the hero of this film? Is he more of a hero well, than Well, Tom, I think it's interesting that you are having those thoughts, but don't have those thoughts for one time daily at the end of The Enforcer. Okay, fair enough. I'll take that. Um, I would say Paul Winfield isn't <laughs> isn't depicted as an inept captain of a starship, but okay. <laughs> All uh, right, fine. And uh, I have another economy note here. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> When uh, you know when uh, other members of the crew are asking about asking who Khan is, Kirk replies, "It's a long story." Yeah, <laughs> and it's like <laughs> right. judicious enough that we don't want to rake over the backstory a second time. Yeah, and also I think at this point, does it matter? No, it really <laughs> like, doesn't. Does, do the origins of do the origins of Khan matter anymore? It's just what he is in this movie that counts. Yeah, which is exactly the way that you handle this you adapt yeah. into cinema. Right. I, I forgot to mention earlier when when they um you know, when it appears as if the original crew of the Enterprise are all killed off in the first few minutes of the film. Mm-hmm. 
one of the other reasons that it makes absolutely no sense is that you would never start a cinematic version of of a TV right. series this way. And then I remembered that that's exactly what Brian De Palma did in Mission Impossible. So that's true. That proves my. But it proves, I don't, depending on your view of that movie, that either proves or disproves my point. <laughs> um. I I mean. The range. Uh, Again, why why it was so hard for me to accept the kind of melodrama tag. Uh, Kirk's monologue is just so brilliantly understated. <laughs> and the fact that it is, it, it's the perfect counterbalance to the Khan moment. And that's why I think it demonstrates range rather than overacting. Okay. I think he knows how to over and underact where it's appropriate and where the movie is asking him to. That's the other thing I was going to say earlier was that whether it's Montalban or Shatner, I mean, maybe except with the exception of the Khan yell for so many people, but I just, I think that my note is Khan amazeballs. There's never a moment where I don't love it. Yeah. But for the most part, all of their choices, they never seem out of step with the movie itself. So, yeah, you know, what did you think of the, the Genesis cave? I, it's it's upon this viewing where I thought to myself, I don't think I understand it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So right. it's underground? That's why it's great that Genesis doesn't actually work. Right. Yes, I, I you're think, right. I think, I think in the next movie, they, they cotton on to the fact that we need to get rid of this. Yeah. This is more trouble than it's worth. Exactly. So let's just say in world, it was more trouble than it's worth. Yeah, so right. Because... <laughs> <laughs> I'd never given it any thought, but then I see the cave and I think, well, I don't understand. There's all this lush green, but it's inside a cave. Like, yeah. how does that sustain? How does that go on? How does that work? I mean, and this, you know, that's the other thing that when, once you're freed, you're freed from the, the, the Roddenberry restrictions, you mm-hmm. can be a bit more, you know, because he was so staunchly atheistic. Yeah. That... Genesis is like is there's so many biblical undertones. It's a, yeah, exactly right. And they know it because they say you know. Uh, he, well, I they're mean, calling it, Khan, it Genesis. Khan, well, but Khan does it? Khan who asks like what what's Genesis or is it someone asks what's Genesis? I mean, I know. Oh, it's I think it's Spock. He says what what's Genesis aside from the biblical reference? Like, yeah, I right. What, I know what Genesis is. Yeah. What is this? And then you know, there's like a fountain of youth kind of thing, which yeah, I guess right. fits thematically with the the movie. Like, like this is an early draft of Cocoon. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I, we haven't talked about this is basic, you know, basic sequel stuff. Savick is a surrogate Spock. Right. And Spock is also in the in the film. In the film. Uh, yes. <laughs> it's right. one of those situations that we've talked about. It's a it's Heston. It's a very Heston. Right. Francisco. <laughs> Hes, a Heston Francisco. <laughs> Um, but it but it it works really well because then Spock starts to come into his own, right? While the younger version of him plays the role that he used to play in the series, because mm-hmm. um, it's Savick that goes with Kirk, yeah, to the cave and to the you know the science lab and all of that with with McCoy, and you so know, you still the... have that three person dynamic, but without Spock mm-hmm. there. <laughs> That's and... right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly it. And what I also like is is 
this idea that, you know, Spock and Kirk are always so in tune, you know, and, and you see it especially in this movie and in Undiscovered Country. You see that moment in yeah. Undiscovered Country. We'll get there when he puts the little the beaker patch, yeah. on his on his shoulder. And in this one with the with the talk o- over the communicators. Yeah. Uh, and sort of the the code within the, their own language and, and the fact that, that they're both on the same page when even those around them aren't on the same page. And they're, they work on the starship, too. Yeah. They should probably know, but they don't. Mm-hmm. And I always love those moments. I, I, just, I, I, I love that, that Kirk and Spock are always working on a level together, even separate from Bones. I, I, I suppose you're right. Yeah, I mean, I think of them as a triangle, but I think I, I, I think you're right as well. There is there is something... They are all on their own level, mm-hmm. definitely. And Bones is usually the one who's saying, what are you doing? How right. could you be doing this? Are you crazy? Yeah. Um, I have more racist things to say about <laughs> his green blood. Um... <laughs> I I mean I I just I I love I love every everything that the bones says and does in this film and and in, and in all the films. Well, that but... line that line I said before we went to break is just one of my favorites. Where Spock says, "Be careful," <laughs> and he leans in and says, "We will." Yeah, because he says he says, "Captain, be careful." Absolutely. Oh, it's so good. And of course, you know the. The, his transportophobia <laughs> comes back. Uh, it's a nice, a nice callback. It says, "Well, what if you know? What if, what if we don't make it?" it says, "Well, that's your chance to get away from it all." Yeah. <laughs> um. Something again, something that you you don't get to see in the TV series that they they relish the opportunity to show here is prepping the Enterprise for battle. Mm-hmm. The torpedoes, everyone in the lower decks. I mean, you just simply they did they didn't have the resources for this in the TV series, right? And yeah, this is exactly what I want to see. They're mm-hmm. building out the world, not just of the show, but also of the ship. Yeah. Um, well, and they... I mean, you know, we it, it goes to an extreme in, in undiscovered country. It's like I don't even see the kitchen. You yeah, know? right. I don't see where they where they make the chicken, but okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like it at this level of. But, you know, but as you will this, get in a submarine, sum, yeah. get in a submarine but film. But th- at this level, it even allows you to do things that are nonsensical, but you, that you never question. Mm-hmm. You know, the moment where, where they do get attacked, they get caught with their pants down before they lower their shields and, you know, they, they move on. And there's that moment where Scotty shows up with the dead young guy that you've seen before. And yeah. I always think, why are you bringing him to the bridge? <laughs> like, get that guy to sick bay. Yeah. It's like Scotty just showed up to say, I showed you this dead body, but you never question it because we've already seen that young person earlier. Like you said, we're yeah. seeing, you know, what what their role was and how, uh, whatever, excited they were to be working on this starship and to like, you know, to be working with Kirk and all of that. And so you, for a character that only has a few lines, you, you still have the sense of loss of a young Definitely. life, you know? Oh yeah, completely. Um, what do you make of uh, one of the best lines um, in the in the film? Two dimensional thinking. Love it. Is this a jab at nineteen sixties TV as much as it is? A do you think? Kirk? I don't know. That's interesting. That it's like you know these guys used to be 
two-dimensional cardboard pa- paper thin characters paper th- i mean not true but yeah I mean, right certainly the perception was that that that's the case and but you know cinema is through three dimensions mm-hmm. i mean maybe maybe just you know to say that if, if it was a conscious thought then i love it all the more i know i mean I, <laughs> well we, we've given we've given play to some of the dialogue what i haven't really given any play to but is so important and will become even more important is the just the sheer literacy of the screenplay yes, exactly. of these movies and this is one this this is I mean, the beginning Khan becomes of that. ahab so like, I mean. well if you think if you think about like in terms of what kind of literary references we have here we've yeah. got tales of tale of two cities is a runner right. khan is constantly sh- quoting shakespeare um, there's the Bible as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Moby Dick. Like Moby Dick. So it's, I just wanted to draw attention to that because as long as I've been watching these films, I've thought, wow, you really don't get this level of literacy. I was going to say like, in I popular have, Hollywood movies. Right. I have always greatly loved the literacy involved in all of the Star Trek movies. And I it's appreciate it as well, and, it, and it's and re- it, right. It's not for it's not there for the sake of being there, of showing yeah. off, of like I know this quote from this book. Yeah, the character who's saying it has a reason to be saying it. Yes, <laughs> which always yeah. makes you know, all the difference it, in the world. It's more often, I mean, specifically in this movie, it's more often characters communicating to each other within uh-huh. with literary quotations, because Spock is trying to say something to Kirk that he doesn't want to directly say and he's using yes. a tale of two cities to do it. Yeah. Um so but it also I think to me it connects in my mind to how erudite the dialogue is in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like it's no accident that these are very that these are movies that are very literate and the dialogue right is feels very Top feels notch. like literature in how it's constructed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's all it's all connected, and obviously Nicholas Meyer is is the sort of common denominator there as um, yeah there as well. Uh, but you know, it, and it's funny you say that because it it I, I don't know it it allows for in world characters. Not that it's like directly related to to the references, but mm. you know you have this idea of the folly of of revenge. Yes. When when Khan chases them into the into the uh what is it the nebula? The nebula. Nebula. The nebula. Yeah. And think how long it takes for them to get out of a nebula in motion picture. Exactly. Right. Just exactly. want to put that out there. Just want to just want to say that out loud for a moment. <laughs> but I love, you know, speaking about the the dialogue and how nimble it is. In that yeah. moment what Kirk says is I'll say this for him. He's consistent. And that's a great yeah. joke. You know what yeah. I mean? Uh, but I, I, as well, I think I think Khan, and you'll get this to a, to a lesser extent, well, a great, lesser or greater extent, depending on your opinion, with Kang in, uh, sorry, Chang in, um, in Undiscovered Country. Yeah. Uh, that him quoting Shakespeare is, it gives him like this, this tragic grandiosity. Mm-hmm. To his demise. Yeah. And it's also, but it's also a shorthand. Like, you know, the reference is telling you everything you need to know that, you know, that this guy is headed for a tragic end. Right. Uh, but it's giving, you know, it's giving him the status of a tragic hero rather than just a failed villain. Yeah. Uh, so it's working on lots of levels. On a much more basic level, 
And I don't know why it took me so long to think of this. <laughs> Carol Marcus is the classic imbass of a character who should be in the original. Right, isn't. right. <laughs> there are so many characters in the original series that could have been Carol Marcus. Carol, right. And none of them are. Nope. <laughs> they could have picked literally anybody who hooks up with Shatner, is a scientist woman who hooks up with Shatner, there's got to be t- at least 10 of them in the original <laughs> series. And yet somehow none of them are Carol Marcus. <laughs> That's amazing. So we have to we have to actively retcon. That's a great impasse. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. We have to actively retcon Carol Marcus into the timeline, even though, <laughs> I, I don't know, maybe it works. It's like, it's like, it's, it's, you know, he would have had a child with someone at some point because yeah. we know what he's like. So it is to type, but it's just hilarious to me that it is everyone but Carol Marcus. <laughs> That's great. And uh, this is well. In, we get yeah, I mean, the, in terms of the, the two-dimensional thinking, we're gonna get, you know. Again, we have the other thing I really like about Star Trek is they're always using their brains. Yes. It's not just brawn, you know. And they have they have to they have to always outthink, mm-hmm. and that's why it works. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's 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 brain you know it's entertainment that's also brain food. Yeah. Um. Where. Where and you get in- just some intelligence of them. and intellect. Yeah. Are... Win the day. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But it also allows the opportunity for some of the greatest shit from Ricardo Montalban. Yeah. I mean, you know, when the the, the place blows up and uh, I can't remember the character's name. What is it? Joachim or Joachim or the guy mm-hmm. that Judson Scott plays and he's dead. Yeah. And, you know, Khan's got his face half melted off, basically, yes. and he's picking up <laughs> huge things of metal and tossing them aside and all of that. But with you know the the Moby Dick stuff with you know, uh, you know <laughs> from Hell's Heart, I yeah. stab at thee and for hate's sake. I mean it's so fucking good. It's just yeah. it's like the it, it, it it's candy. It's 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 so delicious as you as you watch him, you know, spitting at people for <laughs> with his last breath. And I think the best part of it is that it's not the ending of the film like no. it's it's a it's a fake ending mm-hmm. to the film you, you think it's all over and and you know one of the one of the saddest kind of uh, passages in star trek history at least if you take it on face value They're rather flippant about it in retrospect but um <laughs> <laughs> at least at this point spot spot meets his end yeah um and but you uh, always had a sense. I mean, I can remember my first viewing in the movie theater when he puts his hands on McCoy and says remember. Well, that's it. I mean, how we're not that, seeing the end of Spock. Giveaway. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is that's it. I mean, this movie basically ends with about 50 different reasons that Spock isn't dead. Mhm. Um so it's and yet it still musters affecting. up the the yes it musters up an honest to goodness dramatic ending yeah beyond dealing with the bad guy yeah who has blown himself up at this point but right you know genesis is life from death as long as we remember him yeah, shadow right. of new life 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's no way this was an accidental trilogy. There's no way no. that they thought this was... Yeah, you know, remember... They're looking. They're actively looking for ways that they can make a sequel in which Spock survives. Mm-hmm. But I remember... I remember watching it as a kid and thinking, oh my God, what's he doing? No. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. I'll tell you what he is doing. And this is remarkable for a, for a movie. For a, a, okay, a popular Hollywood movie based on a network TV show. And you're, one of your two lead actors is in the middle of Cold War escalation. Yeah, right is espousing communism at its purest. <laughs> the needs of the many, many outweigh the needs, needs of, the, of few. the few. Right. So no and it's one, also no wonder of... they retconned it and yeah. reversed it in the next film. Yeah, exactly. Because that is not that is not Reaganite thinking. No. Um and but I it's just, also I... speaking to, you know, what we were not really arguing about earlier in the in the podcast, but it's a great piece of acting from both of them. Oh, it's a great stunning. moment, and so you know good. what? What gives? Because you're absolutely right. There's no, there's no sense. I don't remember there ever being a sense when I saw this that that this was that Spock really was dead, and the movie's giving you a number of reasons why he might not be. Yeah, all the time. But what makes it poignant to me is that it comes at the end of a film that has been about aging and mortality. Right, and that, you know. I mean, when I saw, you know, I, I understood. And that I'm and, also a sucker for sacrifice. Clearly, I, you know, I I understood that as a younger person, but now as I'm growing older, it speaks to me as someone who's growing old and and you mm-hmm. know even at my age losing friends and family. Yeah, I think that's why it hits you emotionally, not because you don't think there's a way back. Right. I think it's just it's just poignant because, like I said, this is a mature film for mature men. Yeah. You know. People who are getting on in years and have to think about death and aging and mortality and what it means. Mm-hmm. And this is another example of that. It's like you, you're going to lose friends along the way. Yeah. And that's what this film is about coming to terms with, you know. <laughs> and it's about what you choose to do with your time. And we choose this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Don't ruin it for me. Okay. Come on. Um, this is noble work, I'm saying. Noble work. Okay, okay, good. I thought you were taking the other tracks. Like, what What the fuck are we doing here? No, sir, um, no. Uh, so, yeah, they, you know, as Seinfeld said, they send him out in the big glasses case. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, Scotty's got his bagpipes. Yep. Savick's crying, which is fine, even though... It's not really in Vulcan mythology that they can do that, but mm-hmm. that's this movie's breaking boundaries. That's okay. This and is speaking some of, really good fucking writing, though. Of all the souls I've encountered, his was the most human. His was the most human. Come on, yeah, that's really fucking good. Although I think that was, I think that was maybe an attempt to see if Spock was really dead, because I don't think he'd like <laughs> it, that kind of comparison. Right. Say. So, <laughs> If he jumped out, he'd like if anything was gonna make him jump out of that coffin, it's uh, like yeah. The, yeah, it's like undiscovered country when he says everybody's human. I find that yeah. remark uh, insulting. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and you know, it's also it's also you know, it's just as significant I think to the to to the Kirk character arc in this movie is that he accepts parenthood. 
yeah as a rite of passage and I, it's one of my last notes is that all, I, like you say he's no he knows he's a father but this is the first time he's accepted it that he's on the other or, side or or even had the opportunity because he made a yeah. choice you know by request to stay yeah. out of his life and now you know now he has the opportunity i mean i wrote down that i think it's a great scene between him and his son it is yeah and and his son telling him you know, his son earlier in the movie is referring to him as a barbarian and like the last person we need. And he's the worst person yeah. in the galaxy. And then in this scene, he's telling him, I'm proud to be your son. I yeah. was wrong about you, you know. And so he comes to the view that the audience is supposed to come into the theater with about Kirk. But yeah. as we've already said, you know, Kirk is a far more interesting and complex character just within the scope of this one movie. It's also the the movie this movie without hitting you over the head with it, it as the next two movies will do definitely lays the groundwork for the idea of rogue Kirk. Mhm. Like the Kobayashi Maru backstory. Yeah. As gradually find, you know, they they tease you about how did he beat it? And you know the 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 solution is he. It's cheated. not until uh, yeah, it's not until he more than halfway it. through the movie yeah. that you just realize he cheated. So there's a and his response it, is I don't like to lose. <laughs> even even now, even though at the moment he is, you know, he's abiding by the the company line, you mm-hmm. get a sense that that you're dealing with a guy who will happily break the rules when he needs to. Yes, and that is. All you need to know about Kirk in the next two movies. But it's also, you know, it, it it's that refrain that we also ha- we talked a lot about with Dirty Harry. Yeah. This idea of uh, the guy who has, in his mind, the right idea. So I might be doing the wrong thing, but I'm doing it for the right reasons, and you'll come to see my way of thinking eventually. Yeah. I might have to bring whales from the past for you to understand <laughs> it, but you will come to my side eventually. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> that's great. That's yeah. really great. Um, I mean, anything left for you before we credit check? Just the credit check. Uh, well, no, actually, I just wanted to comment on how this movie ends. And again, the fallacy of the accidental trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, We're on your side, only... Tom. Sorry? <laughs> We're on your side. <laughs> well, yeah, but the producers keep going around saying that they didn't right, know what they right. were doing. And, and, uh, Let's I prove don't them know... wrong. Yeah, uh, they should give themselves more credit. Um, but because we end on Spock's coffin. Yeah, right. And then Spock doing the intro to... To the, yes. The, what you would normally be the, the voiceover. Intro, the voiceover at the beginning of every episode of Star Trek, the original series. And so this is the, uh, obviously, it's interesting. I mean, so much depended on the response to this film, right? Mm-hmm. But it seems like they've already decided that this is now an ongoing series. Yeah, right. That they started all over. That they started again, and this is going to be an ongoing series of adventures. And I just think that's um, it ends on a note of new life and continuity, right? Which is another reason why you're kind of reassured that Spock will fu- will survive in some come way. again. Yeah, come back again. Um. On to more quotidian matters. All right, then, the sir. Credit check. Uh, stuntmen. 
both Bill Couch Sr. and Bill Couch Jr. are stuntmen oh. in this movie. All right then, sir. The stunt supervisor is listed as Bill Couch. My question is, which one? <laughs> Speaking of fathers and sons. Uh, this movie has a famous focus puller. Do you know who this is? No. If I said the name Catherine Coulson to you, does that help? I'm afraid it doesn't. The focus puller of this movie is best known as the log lady in Twin Peaks, Catherine Coulson. Oh, wow. Isn't that an incredible crossover? That's amazing. I mean, Not we just least did... because Miguel Ferrer is in the next film. Yeah, right. <laughs> star of Another star of Twin Peaks. Yes. <laughs> huh. so there you go. All right. That's interesting. I recognized the name and I thought, can that be the same Catherine Coulson? And indeed it was. All right. She began a career as a focus puller. <laughs> um, it seems like a lot of the computer graphics were created in laboratories at U UCSF. I saw that, yeah. And it's really interesting because... And we didn't give any play to that, but I think we talk about on the 1982 project that this is sort of like the first fully, what, animated mm. kind of effect for a motion picture or something like that. Uh, right, yeah. It, I like mean, a 3D, you know, not a 3D, but a... Uh, well, it's... it's Computer-generated really effect. Exactly. So so when you, when you think of... When you use words like animated and video game, it's usually in a pejorative sense. Mm -hmm. But, again, it's a testament to this movie sort of yeah, the, working on that working of, on the effects that it can perfect. Right, like the moment displays. where where you as the audience are seeing how Genesis is going to work. Yeah, it looks great. Yeah, and yet it's it's entirely computerized. Yeah, but they but they perfected it. You know, um, and I just what you know, and in addition to that, this I think looking at the credits so many like the national science museum and institutes are credited and it feels like you know star star trek is I nearly did it again star trek is relying <laughs> on uh science more than science fiction sometimes right like they're 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 running they're walking everything through actual scientific information mm -hmm. um and I, I just think that's uh that's fascinating. That's, again, what differentiates it from other space franchises, particularly Star Wars. Yes. Anything left? No, that's it. All right, then. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I can't imagine we're going to find many people that don't love Star Trek II Wrath of Khan, the Wrath of Khan. But uh, by all means, let us know. Maybe you think it's overrated. Right. If so, we want to hear from you. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Send us an email to everythingsequel at gmail.com. If you are listening to this on the podcast platform of your choice, please rate and review us so we can climb the ranks and do more episodes for you. Right. All right. For Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions, Michael Schantz here. When you hear us next time, we will be searching for Spock as we talk for about Found him. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. He's on Genesis. Spo <laughs> spoiler. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> he's where we left him. He's a baby, but he's there. I love. I've never thought about that. The movie's called The Search for Spock, and we already know the answer to that question. <laughs> we, we've, right. already, we've already like it's a mystery. That search. Yeah, <laughs> he's on Genesis in a big glasses case. We gotta find Spock. Where is he? Isn't he where we fucking left him? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Say goodbye, Tom. I'm not a drama critic. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> All right, everyone. Until next time, Star Trek Three coming soon. In your ear holes. Ear one holes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.